All right, so in the uh, spirit of Oppenheimer, I think that I should insert like some Hans Zimmer just throughout this entire conversation today, just some pretty constant Brahms and things like that, just to, you know, make everything a lot more, you know, intense and on the edge of your seat. Just wait for the drop, just like dubstep yeah. style. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, it's a it's a real insight on his part that you know if you make you if you make all of the people watching your movie strain to listen to every word that's being said, uh, and also have a really heavy pounding score, um, then you can convince people to see movies where most of the scenes are set indoors in small rooms uh, with people talking to each other on. Uh, screens as big as 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 houses, biggest barns, biggest you know uh, large office buildings, uh, and uh, it's it's really an impressive feat, and uh, and I applaud him for it. Um, yeah, maybe his next movie is going to be like a Merchant Ivory drawing room drama where you know it's it's people with very genteel British accents talking about you know just suggesting at the edges that an affair might be happening but not <laughs> not being too too explicit about it something something like that but it's got the bumps and the and you, ha- and you have to see it on imax and in 70 millimeter well the, the thing that is so great about it too is that um you know first off the very idea that this uh that the combination if you said at the beginning of the year uh people are going to be worried that not enough people are going to go see the Barbie movie because Margot Robbie has like had a series of failures as a, as a star uh, with other properties that, you know, had uh, weird stuff going on with the movies, but, you know, significant studio backing. So they're going to invest a bunch of marketing money in promoting the idea that you should see it along with a movie that would otherwise only interest men. (laughs) <laughs> and it's i mean you know nothing against i mean it did it did come out in terms of the the uh percentages of something you know 68 percent uh go to see of uh, uh barbie movie goers were women 64 percent of of oppenheimer movie goers were men uh but the point is it made a lot more men see barbie and it made a lot more women see oppenheimer just to be part of a thing and I don't know what the next time is that they're going to try to do this, but they're definitely going to try to do it again because that's all Hollywood knows how to do is to do sequels. Yeah, no, I mean, no doubt. I I do think there's, there is some, there is something about the Barbenheimer thing. And I hate that I said that out loud that is, uh, sui generis and, and like, and, and to, to a large extent spontaneous, right? The hardest thing that, that you can do as a marketer or a, you know, ad wizard is to, you know, create virality. It is something that just sort of has to catch a moment, lightning in a bottle kind of thing. So there there was definitely a lot of that to this. But the nice thing is that, you know, some of the reviews, the politicized reviews and stuff notwithstanding, you know, of both of both of those movies, like it this did seem to be a moment that defied the prevailing cultural logic of um all one thing or all the other i mean it, it it it's like the direct undermining of the 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 two genders meme right you know mm-hmm. because the the fact that it's a singular thing so that was kind of refreshing in its in its own right it, you know that it that it seemed to for a moment you know bridge the typical uh manichaean divides uh that define our our culture well i it definitely uh at least it it gives a lot of couples some halloween ideas uh, yeah. that's, that's for sure um so i uh, you know john i don't know if you have any take on uh on barbenheimer or anything like that uh but uh did you read any of the reviews did you watch either of the movies I, i've not uh seen either of the movies yet i plan to watch oppenheimer at some point with with regard to barbie i, I guess the thing that i would guess and you know maybe time will tell if it's true or not but i suspect a large number of that, you know, male viewership, such as it is where you're seeing that crossover. How many of that is dads taking their daughters to see it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something that where they're not like, Hey, let's go to Barbie where it's, you know, their, their little girls want to go see Barbie and, you know, they, they willingly go along as opposed to, you know, they're, you know, we're sitting there at 1201 to uh, buy tickets and, you know, we're excited to get there for the, the first run of it. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's a a moment of, of great cultural healing, you know, as Dan seemed to be suggesting, and 
you know, I also wonder how much of this is a phenomenon of kind of the, you know, the sort of the broader, you know, elite of college. I mean, you know, I'd be kind of curious to see by market. I did see a map. I think it might've been on Axios that was kind of interesting of where uh, actually maybe it was, it might've just been on Twitter. So take that for what it's worth, but places where search terms were trending towards Barbie or towards Oppenheimer. Like the only place where Oppenheimer was blowing it away, which was kind of unironically New Mexico. Um, <laughs> uh, it was, it was funny though, that Oppenheimer did very well. You know, to me, you you would think, you know, with the, the subject material that it would skew more right-ish, even though that obviously wasn't Oppenheimer's personal politics, but it did pretty well in the Northeast, um, which again, it, it's sort of, you know, are we looking at, should, is the lens of education, you know, sort of how this you know, polarizes out? You know, I don't, I don't really know. So um, yeah, I, think- I can't say I'm waiting to see Barbie at any point, but I'm you know, uh, you know, a fan of uh, uh, Cillian Murphy and you know, want to see, see Oppenheimer. The the thing that I, uh, oh yes, of course you, uh, if, if you have not now, uh, by now put these two things together, um, both of these uh, movies were led by by stars whose perf- uh, failure to uh, perform their jobs adequately as uh, psychotherapists at Arkham Asylum, you know, led to them obviously uh, both uh, f- uh, falling prey to their own insanity and then becoming foes of the Batman. I so, didn't even <laughs> I didn't realize that until this very moment, but that's true, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um. So the the thing that is. Uh, the thing that is sticks sticks out to me is I think you're completely right about the skewing to sort of dads taking their daughters. The question is, how do you manage this in sort of Barbie cinematic universe fashion? Uh, because that they're obviously going to want to do that just given how much money they made from it. Uh, because you can't really do like I had assumed that they were kind of going to do more of a Lego movie thing with it. Mm-hmm. And they did kind of i mean they still have you know the, the it's, it's you know meta it it uh you know involves interaction with the real world uh you know will will ferrell shows up um it's one of these things where they they used certain elements of that but it was obviously more skewed toward like uh older female nostalgia um you know 20 something female nostalgia for their for their childhood and that kind of thing and so it'll be interesting to see uh where they where they go with it um can, can I just say one more thing that's kind of like old, old fogey, admittedly, but, you know, it, there's a to me what I've read about Barbie and I'm I'm, I'm practicing the age old podcasters um, prerogative of talking about a thing that I haven't seen. Learning by um, osmosis. <laughs> Learning yeah, by osmosis. What, I, what, what I what I've seen is like there's a, there's a crucial distinction. They used to make like think about Warner Brothers cartoons. They used to make stuff for kids that had winking moments for grown-ups in it and stuff that we never got the first time we watched it when we were kids you know i'm thinking about bugs bunny animaniacs or whatever and then you know that keeps the the parent who's bringing the kid to the theater involved entertains them i think that's a fine practice as long as it's not too whatever risque but you know what's happened obviously since then is the is the you know massive regression of of popular entertainments where it's you know from like adult disney kids you know on yep. down through through the avengers movies and stuff not that i haven't seen the avengers movies and enjoyed them well enough fine but there there is this massive like regression of where it's now just like no adults watch kid stuff this is this is your entertainment now and i thought barbie was going to be more in line with the warner brothers thing which would have been great and it would have befitted a bunch of dads taking their daughters to it but from what i've read it is like you said more the other way it's more just like no let, let's invite you middle of the pack millennials to just completely regress to your tween tween age years yes like everything else in the culture does which is yeah. kind of a bummer well as uh as i believe stephen colbert said back when he was still making jokes that were funny um it, it, my understanding of the difference between a a novel and a YA novel is that a YA novel is a novel that people read. (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, this is Thunderdome and we have plenty to talk about, uh, this week. And, uh, and I think, you know, we have to begin, uh, with the week that was, uh, for team DeSantis. Uh, it was definitely, uh, a, a week that was pretty dark for them in terms of their, uh, their situation. You saw the layoffs of a significant number of staffers, a little less than 40, it looks like. You don't know how many of those will end up back at the Super PAC. 
but there seems to be some real tension within the, the DeSantis campaign, uh, the the uh, de- decisions that have been made uh, under Jeff Rowe, uh, who's obviously been you know at the key point of their their strategy, their Iowa focused strategy, which is going to be uh, door knocking heavy. You know th- th- that includes an in house data and analytics shop. Um, they uh, had more than ninety staffers by the end of of June, and the, there was this feeling that uh, they had gotten bloated, and that they you know really had a, a lot of things going on. And then there was also sort of this two online flavor to uh, a lot of their uh, campaign, uh, especially like little controversies and things involving videos that may have been produced by uh, by staffers or in house, but then like fed out through other people and attempts to kind of uh, have some kind of, I don't know, viral meme claim or, you know, that kind of thing. I, I just feel like, you know, one of the problems is that, you know, as soon as it was clear that Roe was going to be uh, the person at the center of this, there was this concern that uh, DeSantis's campaign would suffer from the same challenges that Ted Cruz's did back in 2016. Uh, and I know that that's kind of the chatter among people on the, on the outskirts of it. Uh, what are your thoughts, gentlemen, on on the week that was for Ron DeSantis? It's been bad. I don't know if there's any way to get around it. And I think at some point you have to wonder if this is just what the DeSantis for president experience is going to be like. I, I think we keep looking for a good week, and you know, you know, and we sort of settle on a few good moments. You know, he did you know fine with Tapper, or he, you know, there's something else that they do that you know. He, it seems like it's something that you just sort of expect of a candidate, but you know, when you have the Twitter launch, when you have um, you know, the staff firings, when you've got reports of infighting, I mean, at this point, it seems like it's, you know, the, the DeSantis campaign, the recipe was, you know, add one part Jeb put Jeb Bush with the, you know, the the super PAC versus campaign intrigue there, one part Scott Walker with the overspending on uh on staff early on, and one part Ted Cruz with the the consultants running all of it and put it in a blender and it's, you've kind of come out with this and you know just looking at the real clear averages just before we started and he is the santa's is at his lowest point in the polls since july 1st of last year i mean that's you know and nothing no environmentally bad thing has happened to him right you talk about in sports with the team being in control of their own destiny. And I think to a large extent that that was true. You know, he was the, he was the other, you know, 800 pound, pound gorilla in this race with, with, you know, former president Trump. And, you know, instead of acting like a heavyweight to your point where they're worried about, you know, Twitter memes and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, that's, that's, I'm running for sixth place kind of behavior as opposed to, you know, I'm the, the, the challenger to the champ. So, I mean, I, you know, I, know, I know that we've said before, or I've said before, that it seems like it was getting late early for DeSantis, but realizing the campaigns can can turn around. But at what point do we just say that this is kind of who they are, and you know maybe it's not going to get better? Yeah, the one the one thing that oddly enough that I think he has handled best, I, I know he had the AI Trump video, which was weird, um, but the the one thing he's handled best i think ironically so far is his confrontation with trump you know the way i think early on they were a little too cautious i think they evolved a pretty decent strategy not an ideal strategy from my view but a pretty decent strategy for attacking trump from the right and on results and on covid and all that familiar stuff and they handled that okay it's it's really been everything else that has been crappy and you know i will say so the the conventional wisdom is quickly adhering i think ben you were early on this is adhering around the this is like the cruise campaign i've heard that from a lot of people sort of independently in the last week or two um including a lot of people who i I really defer to on, on this stuff but i do think there are limitations to that comparison and they mainly involve the candidates themselves i mean cruise has sure people i mean people talk about talk about desantis's kind of neurodiverse aloofness but Cruz just has a severe obviously charisma problem and um also he has that debate team captain vibe that for better or worse certainly 
DeSantis doesn't have. And furthermore, I mean, we we know kind of how useless the United States Senate has become generally. And so that was the platform from which Cruz was running. And, you know, everybody was at that point familiar with the phenomenon of the senator from Fox News hit, um, which was, you know, quickly, uh, which had already sort of become the thing that people did with Senate seats is try and secure Fox News hits. Um, whereas, you know, DeSantis has an actual record. He, he's a he's an executive. Um, I don't think his second term has been as productive as it, it might have been. But certainly he's got his first term record. He's got some of that red meat stuff from the second term that that'll please a certain segment of uh, of, of Trump voters um, or Trump curious voters. Um, so I think he's a he's probably a better he's in a better position structurally than Cruz was. And and Certainly, although he's got his own kind of charisma challenges, he doesn't have Cruz's charisma challenges. He's not, he, he, you know, he's just not as naturally polarizing as Cruz was. I, th I think certainly the media is going to try and make him that polarizing, but um, he doesn't just sort of have it intrinsically. It's also something we talked about early on. He's got a great family. He's got a great, they're, they're really good on TV, photogenic. His wife is all in, beautiful little kids. So he's got some resources to draw on, but there's absolutely no question that this has been a four month long brain fart for him. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one other, one thing that's interesting is, you know, you talk about the difference between the first, uh, the first term and the second term. There's, in fairness, uh, he's been in the second term for seven months. Yeah. You know, um, it's not like we're two or three years in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like post-election, though, I mean, it really has changed the last year. If you well, take that. Well, he's been running for president the entire time. Yeah. So. So, I mean, I mean, one thing that I think is is clear, though, is that there's this perception that. Basically, the uh, uh, the DeSantis effort moved from being kind of a straightforward uh, normie Republican uh, with some conservative cultural leanings into something that was much more about uh, battling wokeness uh, and and going after, you know, kind of uh, beating beating the left within all of these different institutions and entities. Uh, the there's one uh, interesting uh, perspective on this is from uh, you know Fred Bauer has a piece it uh, at Unheard uh, today where he notes that just using uh, Q polls, which I don't actually, uh, I don't think very highly of them, but uh, that's beside the point. Uh, he, uh, that uh, DeSantis went from winning white college educated Republicans by 29 points in April to losing them by five points in July. Uh, and also making the point that uh, in terms of, of, you know, some of the early, you know, expectations. And again, you know, it, these are polls with small sample sizes uh, that one of the uh, big, you know, sort of leans for DeSantis, the people who've stuck with him, are uh, people who have kids at home. Uh, so, in other words, if you if your child has to go through that kind of schooling experience right now, uh, that those types of things are things that can appeal to you because you know you obviously you're in the thick of it. But if you're not, if you're not in that position, and obviously most Republican primary voters are not, you know, they are older and they don't have that kind of experience going on right now. Uh, they uh, are you know much more open i think to you know downplaying those issues a bit maybe not not putting them in in as high of a priority and so what theoretically would that look like you know john i mean you've talked about kind of the appeal of normie republicans in a time of chaos and uh and upheaval if if the desantis effort was to kind of lean more into that uh where it's Glenn Youngkin, but with a harder edge, you know, maybe, you know, without the smile and the vest and the, and the uh, big business ties, uh, but some of that same kind of flavor to it. Do you think that's possible for him to execute? Uh, and if you were to try to, what would that look like? I think it would probably look like the first couple of years that he was in office, right? You had him doing stuff on teacher pay. You had him as, you know, the a fairly, you know, conservative champion on environmental issues where he's been involved and obviously those are important in Florida. I think in our politics right now, whoever is on, whoever is seen as being aggressively on offense, there, there seems to be a, a societal recoiling from that. Um, you know, I, I think that no, no one wants to be mean or uninclusive, but I think some more people get a little more que queasy when you're 
being told like you must wear the ribbon you know you must take the knee you must bake the cake so i i think when you look at what glenn youngkin has done in virginia um there hasn't been really this sort of you know reconquista it's been hey we're going to set this as you know status quo ante of you know basically neutrality on these kind of issues um you know we're going to all this, all the apparatus that was put in to push a certain agenda. We're going to take all that stuff out, but uh, you know, I, I don't see him, you know, really trying to aggressively kind of, you know, proselytize in a different direction. Cause I think people don't like that. I, I think that it, to some degree, you're going to have to let the American people, you know, in their communities. And again, all this now is downstream of, you know, culture and larger trends and institutions that have, you know, been absorbed by, progressives but if you're if you're you know i think if you're the santas i think you start you know sort of as you outlined start with where you're strong and build out from there start around the, an agenda for um you know stuff that's good for for families you know, dust off some of the stuff that um you know and modernize it when you know it was you know probably more of an inside the beltway thing but you know when eric Cantor was majority leader he had a sort of making life work agenda and some of it was be able to roll over instead of taking overtime pay, being able to roll that into additional family leave time, things like that. Uh, try to solve discrete problems, deliver real benefits for your voters. I, I just don't think, um, you know, and, and I, you know, I'll pick on Mike Pence here just because, you know, I've, I've seen him do this for 15 years, all this sort of, you know, timeless conservative principles and blessings of liberty, you know, Chip Roy kind of stuff. And, you know, not that I disagree with those guys. But that's not tangible to a normal person, right? You know, the blessings of liberty doesn't pay for your kid to go to the doctor when they've got strep throat. It doesn't deal with whatever weird stuff they're trying to teach your kid in public school. You know, sort of, you know, uh, the the you know in the movie Disclosure, you know, again, sort of dating myself as a geriatric millennial. Um, you know, the Michael Douglas character is being accused of sexual harassment when, in fact, it was vice versa movie probably couldn't be made today. Um, and, and this is in the midst of, you know, he's in the software company and they're trying to work through some problems on a launch. And you know, this is happening against the backdrop of this sort of sexual harassment thing that's going on. But he keeps seeing these mysterious emails about, you know, fix the problem. And, you know, the, the problem is trying to fix the software for, I think DeSantis could pick up on the same sort of concept of fix the problem. Where are things bothering people? Don't don't worry about Twitter. In fact, you know, delete your account. Don't worry about it anymore because, you know, in as much as there are people that are really, really online and hyped on this stuff, they're probably Trump's guys. So pick a half dozen things where you think that could be we're going to talk about a culture of work, something that has been undermined with expansions of ACA and other things. Uh, certainly there's job, uh, the shortages of, of workers in the workforce. Things like that that are tangible, that resonate for people, and even where people may be somewhat hypocritical of, hey, I'm getting unemployment benefits, but yeah, there's a lot of you know welfare queens out there. There's a lot of people that are taking advantage of the system. I don't look in the mirror on that, but but yeah, it's a problem. And, and trust me, that's you know in my time on the hill, that's out there. Um, but try to try to solve those problems instead of. Um, and the other thing too is if you're on the cultural stuff, the way he's handling it now, it's very much sort of the the Bond villain mustache twirling monologue of sure, there's gonna need to be changes that happen within these institutions, but don't lead with that. Just just do those things quietly while you're delivering W's for your voters. So I, I he needs to keep the main thing, the main thing. Delete his Twitter account, don't worry about these weird meme videos. Um and plow ahead with kind of who he is. I mean, I know there was the sort of the, the let Ron be Ron kind of let Bartlett be Bartlett. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, but, but to an extent, I think that he kind of was a guy that was more creative on policy. And now he's just turned into, is he's, is he running to be you know, the lead anchor on a conservative news network or is he running to be president? Yeah. I mean, you, the question, Ben was what, what would, a what would a, DeSantis focus on normie Republicans look like and and my answer is it would look like trying even a little bit to to, to talk to those voters I mean we I think we've we've gotten 
so the last few presidential cycles, we we talk about lanes a lot, almost exclusively, and I think that's limiting. And now it's like the case that in a, in a Republican primary, you know, everyone's just trying to find their lane, and and they're determined to try and win with the smallest, you know, possible plurality, you know, the most specialized niche plurality that can just edge out the others, rather than trying to get 60-70% of the party together. And I don't think, I mean, I guess I would sort of disagree on some of the granul granularity uh in John's answer but but broadly I think that that's right I, I just think it looks like you know he's not he's not um Glenn Youngkin he and, and he's kind of a mirror image Glenn Youngkin or 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 Glenn Youngkin with the you know with the with the emphasis sort of uh shifted which is to say you know Youngkin is a chamber of commerce republican and a and a and a real sort of dry fiscal first guy who shrewdly and frankly and effectively and also you know authentically to a, to a large extent realized the resonance of some of these cultural issues and especially the education issue and was able to more or less authentically incorporate those themes into his campaign without doing a full maga you know turn or without coming off as if he were play acting or larping as something that he wasn't and you know DeSantis we know he's got the policy chops we know that he you know is capable of having his nose in a in a white paper or, or a you know a policy briefing book and and that's who he is and so it's okay for him to do some stuff that appeals to people who think similarly try and get the Mitch Daniels voter you know and and that looks like I think going to some chambers of commerce and talking to business leaders and going to some you know kind of main street you know, Republican voters and just just engaging those people and talking about those things doesn't mean he has to stop. I don't think he has to delete Twitter. And I don't even think he has to do the woke, the anti-woke stuff, you know, or the culture war stuff quietly. He just has to do it with uh, that kind of Yunkin spirit where it's like, you know, these things are important. They're going to they're, they're going to make people's lives better. And the craziness kind of has to stop rather than making about drinking liberal tears. I mean, the people who want to drink liberal tears are going to be with you, you know, if you deliver the results. Um, the people who just care about drinking liberal tears are probably going to be with Trump. But the people who, you know, enjoy the drinking of liberal tears, along with all that other stuff, are going to be with you, whether you, you know, dunk, you know, dunk the ball or, or just, you know, make a smooth layup. So, um, I think it just looks like, you know, trying, try to get those voters. That's who, that's who brought him to, you know, number one contender status, that coalition. And he needs to remember that if you want to win the nomination, you have to win it with a coalition. You know, just one point on this uh, before we move off of, of DeSantis, uh, you know, I think one example that I would point to, I was just looking up when he did this, cause I knew it was uh, last year. Um, we're a little less than a, a year removed uh, from when uh, he did that big uh, presentation uh, for permanent tax exemptions for baby and toddler items, uh, and uh, just a, a complete uh, uh, you know ex exemption for sales taxes on basically anything uh, like you know diapers, school supplies, that sort of thing, um, and you know basically a dramatic expansion of the kind of back to school tax holiday that some. Some states have that kind of situation where, you know, he was made fun of by the by the media for standing and like uh, surrounded by, you know, a bunch of big things of diapers. To me, that's something that appeals to more voters, more normie voters than, you know, going after, you know, this this or that corporation. Uh, and I think that that kind of is absent from his agenda right now. And there's one more aspect of it that I think is worth pointing out. Donald Trump is not going to be someone who talks about those issues. He's going to talk about the same set of issues that he's been talking about all along. He's going to talk about bad trade deals. He's going to talk about war. He's going to talk about the border. And he's going to talk about himself. And those issues are fine in terms of, you know, being he's he's playing the hits, you know, effectively when he does that. He gets bored by, you know, stuff like the the diaper stuff. And when it comes to wokeness, he, you know, he sort of hand gestures in that area, but we all know that it's not actually what he wants to be talking about, um, uh, unless it's a target that he has, you know, unless he has some kind of, you know, specific person in media, ideally a celebrity, um, you know, that he can go after um, 
he doesn't respond to it the way that he does with sort of you know picking on Rosie O'Donnell or something like that. And, and so you know, I think you know, that leaves you, an opening. That leaves an open. Totally. And and maybe we're maybe we're overthinking it. It's as simple as this: like go after women GOP voters in the primary. There's a huge opportunity. They don't like Trump, right? Even even inside the GOP, you know, like. They, they they don't like him in a general. Of course, that's been that's that's the sort of devastating story of the last three cycles, presidential mm-hmm. and and congressional. So go, so you know who you know who does like you know good looking politicians in in their prime child you know raising age standing around a bunch of diapers is moms you know. So like that's absolutely there's an, a huge opportunity there. It's also you know it plays off of, like I said his beautiful family and. The fact that he's, you know, not 106 years old is, is you know, play, play to those strengths, play to younger voters, play to women voters. I mean, y- you have to run a future oriented campaign. Um, so I think that's that's dead on. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's move to talking a little bit about uh, the Biden situation. You know, the obviously this is the first time this past week where, you know, Kevin McCarthy has openly teased the the possibility of an impeachment inquiry. Um not necessarily saying that they would move forward on it, but they certainly seem to be, you know, it seems to be much more of a realistic thing. Uh, and a point that I've made is that as much as the media might frame this as being, uh, you know, McCarthy responding to his right flank, uh, to me, the support for impeachment is actually much higher among Republicans um, than I think people realize. And Republican voters and the electorate generally um, having the opinion that, uh, Joe Biden is someone who has committed certainly unethical acts, uh, if not criminal acts, in terms of of you know bribery funneled through his son uh, from foreign entities. You know is is much higher. You know to the point that you know the White House seems surprised whenever the poll data comes up in in press conferences. We saw the latest development in Delaware where uh, the Hunter Biden plea deal that had been arranged and then criticized as being a sweetheart basically fell apart um and the you know this is it's possible that there's going to be something that comes back together but uh you know instead of any kind of plea deal you know uh, proceeding he uh, hunter biden ended up pleading not guilty um to all of the charges that he was uh, going to face Uh, there's reports that his own attorneys had expected this to be kind of pro forma um, that they didn't realize that there was uh, going to be the backlash. But the essential take, uh, you know, the thumbnail version from this non-lawyer is uh, that this deal was very unclear in terms of how much immunity it was giving him for charges on other areas. Uh, and the judge was uncomfortable with that and then also uncomfortable with uh, the position that she would have to have in terms of a fact-finding on uh, on his, uh, you know, living up to the the terms of the uh, agreement on uh, getting rid of that gun charge, uh, and, and there's a number of different terms that uh, have been released associated with that. So, all of this to say, Hunter Biden seems to very much be a very live issue. The possibility of impeaching Joe Biden seems to be a very much a, a live issue, uh, and you know, with his own personal slowing down and, and decaying, you know, really in front of us this the conventional wisdom in response to what just happened today is definitely that this is a way for democrats if they're going to make a change um to push him out i mean personally i don't see that happening i don't think that that's going to happen i think that you know the idea that he's not going to be the candidate i've been resistant to all of the different you know hugh hewitt's asked me this question like six times over the past six months and i keep saying that i think he's still going to be the candidate but I say it with far less confidence than I would say, uh, you know, perhaps a few months ago when it seemed like these issues were going to be swept under the rug uh, through until certainly next spring or summer uh, when it would be too late to replace him. Uh, Thoughts, gentlemen, on where we stand and the likelihood of Joe Biden being replaced? Yes, I agree with you. It's still still not likely. They're at a really awkward spot in the calendar. It's it's not technically too late i mean either i think sort of optically or um structurally uh from a from a from a you know election calendar standpoint to do it um but it's also not at a critical mass yet right like for 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 there to be any real energy behind what would amount to a kind of soft coup within the party um 
And that's just, uh, it's a really tough spot for them to be in. And in an odd way, what the Democrats were able to do in the midterms kind of screwed them. Because before the midterms, we were when we all thought it was going to be a red wave, um, like a bunch of idiots, we, a lot of us talked about, well, the recriminations against Biden are going to be massive and it's going to be a ticket to a single term presidency and he might not even be the nomination. It's hard for, you know, political cycles being what they are now, it seems like a million years ago, but there was a lot of talk about that. And in a weird way, if that oh, and happened, public talk, we should be clear, like they were even some of the, oh, yeah. there was leaking. reporting in the yep. Washington Post, the New York Times and Politico that all seemed to lean in that direction. Yeah. And so in a, in a weird way, it might have put the Democrats in a worse position long term that they were able to do what they did in those midterms and that they massively overperformed polling and public expectations and media expectations about what they were going to do. And it bought Biden this time. But man, it just certainly looks like he's dirty. Not, you know, like you said, he's got the mental issues, the mental deterioration, and it just it really looks like he's dirty. Um, and the stuff, you know, the stuff that came out from the whistleblower about Burisma is especially interesting because some of that stuff was said in the con in a context where the person who was saying it wouldn't have known about, you know, at the time and under those conditions, wouldn't have known about the kind of conservative fever swamp version of of what people were saying about you know joe biden so it's like so it's it's uniquely kind of independent in that way that it that it was chatter that was coming out of the world and at a time before this narrative had kind of ossified it you know in the oppo research departments on the right so that gives it a, a kind of added kind of plausibility now who knows if it's tr really true or not but you know add that up with all the hunter other hunter stuff and you know the and the his other obvious flaws as a candidate and it certainly seems like you know he's going to be an albatross around the party's neck and makes the prospect of a second Donald Trump term just much more likely um but but they're at an awkward point in in the calendar and I don't know if if there's a way to do it um you know if there's enough time to reach critical mass and then if there's enough time to recover from the damage that such a move would itself cause to the democrats prospect yeah i tend to agree with that i think the other question too is if if for some reason the president decided not to run for re-election which i think would be unlikely and, and oddly for a lot of the same reasons that it was always clear that trump was going to run for re-election of I think those guys both kind of need it to justify themselves. They want to be the guy behind the big desk and have all this stuff happening around them. Uh, but if it's not, if it's not Biden, then who, I don't know that there's anyone that's such an obvious heir apparent that can just clear the field away. So what you're left then is the kingdom has been sort of pulled apart and you're going to have these fiefdoms and some of them overlapping. If Kamala Harris is not going to give up pole position uh, to to be you know, sort of the 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 heir apparent, right? She's been the vice president for well, been for for four years. She has risen up through the ranks of California politics. But if you're Gavin Newsom, you want to wait potentially eight years behind her. You know, are, are is America not going to have you know twelve or sixteen years of straight California progressive Democrats? You know, Mayor Pete doesn't have really anywhere to go. Uh, does he? want to throw, I mean, clearly, you know, past the past running for president is a reasonably strong indicator of somebody wanting to do it again in the future. So I don't, to me, even with the, the problems that Biden brings, and I think that the sort of the, the, the weakening of his mental faculties, I think are Trump, literally everything else. I, I think any sort of the, the stuff around Hunter, I think is more or less survivable for him just because I think that partisan bases are so hardened at this point that he, his campaign will be able to spin this as, you know, this is another right-wing smear attack. And mm -hmm. look, you know, the U S attorney who was Trump's guy was willing to plead this out as a, as a minor thing, you know, nothing to see here, move along. I, I think the Biden solves the problem of, of keeping his party more or less unified, even if they're unhappy with it, it is an unhappy that they can all more or less live with. I, I think if they're sort of the, go through the, the motions of finding a not Biden to run the top of the ticket, I just don't know how that plays out. And I don't know how people are able to, I mean, it seems like Gavin Newsom has been making moves to, if not this cycle, certainly next cycle, 
run for president and to you know have that kind of fundraising and infrastructure and all those sort of things. I'm not sure who else can just do that at the drop of a hat. Uh, I think like Raphael Warnock would actually be a pretty strong candidate. He's won twice in a what had been a red state. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that he's a, he's an interesting candidate for them. I think he's an interesting and compelling just figure generally. Um, so uh, I, I, I think I, I think my assessment has been that Newsom assumes that Biden remains the candidate, but he's there in case of breaking glass. Um, and yeah. that he is ideally what he would prefer to have happen. Um, I actually think he would, pref- he, you know, I think he would personally actually prefer for Trump to beat Biden this time and then be a single term president, in which case he can be the American comeback guy, build an organization and and just run basically for four years from California. Um, that's my own personal take. I think that he you know, only cares about himself and only cares about his own ambition. And so to the degree that he is helping Biden at this point, it's only because he's his mind is on for, you know, four years from now. But I do think that he is prepared to slot right in there. And I do not think he would have a problem beating Kamala. Um, I think he's way more popular within his party, I should say, um, than uh, than Kamala is, uh, who just just, you know, seems to be viewed as an albatross. Um, yeah, I mean, you know. sh- sure, but. You know, setting aside the first female nationally elected figure, you know, who is also African-American, who is also Asian-American, um, I, I, I don't think she goes quietly. Yeah. So and and look, I, I think that that could rip open, you know, seams of division uh, within the Democratic Party that have been papered over. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think I, I think you might even have you might even have people saying, "Well, you know, she is how black is Kamala, really?" You know, is is you know that sort of thing. Like, I mean, you, this is this is like there's so many fascinating hypotheticals you could game out. Like, I, I don't think that anyone is going to push via the the primary. He's going to push Biden out of the top spot. I mean, I could see a situation where if RFK's numbers get really scary. Right. Like if they push into the 30s or something like that, then it's going to panic. It's going to panic. some. Stop trying to make fetch happen, man. RFK is not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. But like it generally agree. But if but if that were to happen, then OK, then in that situation, maybe there's some panic there. But I think what would have to happen realistically, like the most realistic path to a not Biden is his resignation, is his Nixonian resignation. And it wouldn't be because, you know, they were about to. They were about to handcuff him. It would be, you know, a combination of the concerns over his acuity, the Hunter stuff and, you know, and RFK and poll numbers and looking like he wasn't going to repeat 2020. And then he would just say something like, I'm going to spend more time with my son. He needs my help. And he would. But then that leaves you with, you know, President Kamala, who it becomes the de facto nominee. So, I mean, like, look, all this stuff is is fantasy land. I I, I get it. But that, it just gets to the point of, like, how do you see there from here? Like, how, mm-hmm. how, what, are, what are the actual steps that could lead to that eventuality? I mean, the other obvious one is, uh, you know, a medical event, obviously. But um, but th- those are really kind of the only the only scenarios I see. I don't think anyone's going to push him out this cycle. It just just ain't happening. So uh, let's just with the time we have left, let's do a quick go around of some of the other folks uh, that had things going on uh, this week. We saw some pointed criticism from Chris Christie directed at someone other than Donald Trump, uh, namely Tim Scott, uh, who was doing a a radio appearance in New Hampshire and and said um, that he didn't hold uh, President Trump uh, responsible for uh, the, any threats to his life or the lives of others on, on January 6th um, because he didn't personally do it himself. Uh, and, uh, you know, Christie said, goes on Face the Nation and says, you know, that, you know, just because he didn't do it himself doesn't mean that he doesn't bear the responsibility, et cetera. I'm curious what you think about that interaction. Obviously, you know, Scott is uh, someone who's climbed uh, a good bit in the polls and uh, and certainly seems to be benefiting as I expected earlier, and I think maybe I mean, one of the other of you may have said it as well, expecting that he would benefit uh, from Mike Pence underperforming. Uh, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of folks who, uh, you know, within the religious uh, portion of the party who might have had some kind feelings toward Pence who are going to end up, uh, I think, following Scott instead. 
Um, what are your what is your reaction to that, and and what does it set up in terms of Christie maybe showing that he's willing to go after everybody, not just Trump? Yeah, I think I'll Scott's John, inch. Uh, oh, sorry, John. I'll let you go in a second because I know it's mommy and daddy are fighting for you, so <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're going to want to talk. But just just briefly, I think you know, not going to surprise either of you. I think it's more evidence that Chris Christie's running to be. He's running in the bulwark lane. He's running to be the GOP candidate for the DNC. He's running to be the GOP guy for the mainstream media. It's it's like, you know, instead of trying to peel off Trump voters or DeSantis voters, he's trying to consolidate the also ran vote. There just aren't the numbers there for him him to win. This is a vengeance tour. I mean, I guess tactically that, you know, makes sense, you know, if this guy's, you know, nipping at your heels in New Hampshire um, to do it. But again, it just shows how, unviable i think christie's path is now that's my two second take but i'm curious to have john disagree or prove me wrong it's funny because I, I was going to sort of turn it around and and look at scott first because i think what makes tim scott interesting and and i could see the appeal uh to evangelical voters in iowa and i could see him being a a, a siphon of votes away from mike pence the the th- the, the other piece of it though which i i don't think you Address, and I'd be kind of curious, Ben, what you think, as I also see Tim Scott as somebody who can take the Glenn Youngkin or early stage Ron DeSantis voters that want somebody who is not of the Bush era of conservatism, somebody who's more pointed in his approach to things, but who is, you know, you don't have to feel bad at your neighborhood party saying that you voted for Tim Scott. I mean, people are still going to give you grief because you're you know, still an evil Republican, but, oh, he seems like a nice guy, you know, and it's, it's funny. I've had these conversations with, with, you know, progressives that I know, and it, they don't have a bad word to say about Tim Scott. And obviously if he rises in the polls, he'll be the devil by the end of the, you know, by the end of next month. But to me, I think he can sort of pull together a couple different pieces of the puzzle with, with regard to Christie. Look, I, I think it's very much the, it's the Wyatt Earp vendetta ride from Tombstone, and I'm here for it, man. And I think that he has a enormous axe to grind. And I think you have to say all the right stuff about that you think you could be president, and you have to have a path. And uh, you've got to you got to sell something to to the people that are going to donate to you. And and I don't know that it's I don't know that it's I don't. I don't think it's necessarily fair to characterize him as sort of the the the, the bulwark candidate because if he was, he'd be running as a Democrat. Um, but I think I think Christie hates Donald Trump, and I think that he is of the opinion that what happened in January sixth, the really we'll say post election day, you know, post post polls closing, because things started to get weird on election night um, in twenty twenty, that Christie thinks it was something that was really really bad. And I don't think he's wrong about any of that. And I think that he is, I think he's right to be, I think he contextualized that he, the only reason that he picked on Tim Scott is Tim Scott said something that he thinks is wrong. And it's something that's wrong and it's adjacency to, to Trump, which I think is where the you know, Venn circles overlap. But if you're in some way, I still think Christie has the best, theory of the case in this race because it is all about trump this race is entirely about donald trump and he seems to be one of the only people that is that accepts that as a, a foundational piece of what their, his campaign looks like he's not going to be the nominee he, he might excite people in new hampshire and break into double digits uh i still think he's going to be an absolute wrecking ball on a debate stage uh it's interesting uh, let's go back to the santas for a minute uh there were some reports that the the super PAC side of, of DeSantis world suggested that DeSantis might not show if Trump doesn't show for the debate and how much of that is, you know, you don't want Chris Christie, the George Foreman, your guy. I, I think that, look, I think Christie, I, I suspect he believes it. I think he believes it's problematic. Uh, he's a guy that's a fighter. And yeah, if the, if the outcome of this is you make yourself more uh, acceptable to Democrats or more likely to be a regular on the Sunday shows, great. Yeah, you know, man's got to eat. You know, man's got to pay for his. You know, <laughs> by multiple mortgages, man really has to eat. You know, but and he, I think he, you know, would probably lean into that himself. But 
I think I think Christie believes it, and I think that he views his job as basically disciplining this primary field. And I don't think it's a bad thing. People are going to have this question. They're going to have this question is going to face people in in the fall too of, of next you know next year, uh, provided it's a non-Trump. And I think it's still overwhelmingly likely to be Trump, and is more so every day. And if you don't, if you can't deal with that question and deal with it in a way that again, I think Glenn Youngkin is the model of. Oh yeah, ballot security is really important. We need to take care of that. Brian Kemp and, and Youngkin both, I think, have played it extremely well. But it becomes not about Trump. It's about the thing, but not about the thing. Mm. And I think it's it's a delicate dance. But saying that Donald Trump is not responsible is like saying that the mob don wasn't responsible for you know acts of criminality that were you know in his name because he just gave the order. He wasn't actually out there in the streets with brass knuckles with the copper regimes. So. I I think Christie's right. I think Tim Scott is too smart and too decent uh, to to believe what he said. Um, I, I I get I get it. I get why he would react that way. But I think he I think he could be better, and I think he needs to have a better answer if he wants to be president. Because I don't think that that holds up in a general election. All right, gentlemen. Final final question for you both. Uh, the FEC is uh, being being asked to investigate a half a million dollar PAC uh, donation uh, backing Miami Mayor Francis Suarez that apparently comes from a Chinese uh, straw donor. Uh, Passion Forest LLC, a small online vendor founded in 2021, this is from the Miami Herald, uh, appeared to be a straw donor illegally masking the identity of whoever was behind the contribution. It has no online presence other than an Amazon storefront listing a Chinese business address. Uh, and and has made just one major political contribution. So on a scale of one to ten, uh, uh, one being not at all Miami, and ten being uh, Ricky Martin short shorts Miami. Uh, how Miami is this story? Yeah, if it that's... was Colombian money, it would be a ten. Uh, <laughs> Chinese money, I think, is a little off brand. A little off brand. This story rides around in a cigarette boat. this story is a fiend for mojitos (laughs) all right gentlemen uh this has been thunderdome for john for dan Uh, i'm ben dominic you can subscribe to all of our podcast newsletters and the magazine at thespectator.com and we'll be back next week with more about this crazy election 